When we first started listening to Micah, uh, or speaking to, listening to God speaking to us through Micah, it was back just after Anzac Day. The question we began our time in Micah was, how do you feel about God's judgment? How do you feel about the reality that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead? Uh, if you're a Christian, if you're depending on Christ alone for salvation, how do you feel about the lost? The tens of thousands of people in our region who are lost, who, as Ephesians say, it says, are without hope and without God. Uh, as I said back then, and as I know my own heart, I suggested maybe our hearts were cold to this reality, that we had no space in our lives for lament, at least not lament over God's right and holy judgment. But that's not what we see in Micah. Micah's heart is broken. He's overwhelmed with grief and anguish because he knows what God will do. As we spent time together in Micah since uh, April this year, and Micah's three messages of gloom, yet with hope, how's God been at work in your heart? As we open the last chapter of God's message to us through Micah, that's the question for us today. How do we feel about God's judgment? What's God been doing in our hearts through this message? For Micah, God's judgment and the sin that leads to God's judgment overwhelms him with grief. He looks at the nation, the chosen people of God, the church, if you like, of the Old Testament, and he laments. He laments because they've turned their back on God, they're full of evil, there's not a godly person amongst them, and because of this, God will come in judgment. So let's listen to his lament from verse 1. This is Micah 7, 1. What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. It's gut-wrenching stuff. We're talking about the people of God here. Those who've received the covenant promise, uh, the covenant promises, who have the temple in their midst, but because of their sin, they're tearing themselves apart. There's corruption. So you can't trust those who were meant to enforce justice. 
There's violence, so you can't go out on the streets. Even the best of them, the the most upright, the most moral people, you can't go anywhere near them or else you'll get scratched to bits. And it's not just out in the streets, out in the city. You're not even safe in your own home with your own family. And note, and I can't emphasise this much enough, Micah's not talking about the world. He's not describing the pagan nations. He's not pointing the finger at them out there. This is what's happening with the people of God. And it breaks his heart. Now, before we go on listening to Micah, we need to pause here a moment. Because what Micah's talking about, it's not relegated to history. Maybe as you were listening to verses 2 through 6, maybe you're thinking, well, at least we're not like that today. At least there's no people who say they're a Christian but are guilty of violence, corruption or lies. How many times have we heard of churches who excuse violence and abuse, especially if it's in a leader? They cover it up, committing more deceit and greater evil against the survivors. Uh, Even this week, you may have seen in the news, uh, there was a report by the Australian Anglicans, a report into the prevalence of domestic violence amongst Anglican churchgoers in Australia. The report found the incidence of DV is higher amongst Anglicans than it is in the Australian population. Micah could almost be writing about the people of God in churches today. Micah speaks the truth, the uncomfortable truth of corruption within God's people. Now, the big message of Micah 7 is about forgiveness, and we're going to get to that. But we need to see that before forgiveness is truth. Pretending violence, evil, corruption or deceit isn't happening brings no honour to God. Too many churches have tried this, pulling out the PR machine when sin is revealed, instead of speaking truthfully about sin, naming it for what it is, allowing discipline and justice to have its way, whether it's justice through the police and the courts or whether it's through church discipline or perhaps or often both, instead of telling the truth about sin amongst ourselves, we've disgraced almighty God by lying and covering it up. Brothers and sisters, if you listen to what Micah says and you hear that and you think, that's me, either you're a survivor of that kind of abuse or you've committed this kind of evil, let the truth out. If you're a perpetrator, hear the warning of verse 4. Judgment will come, so own up now. Repentance may look like reporting yourself to the authorities. It might mean making restitution. If you're a survivor, if you're currently experiencing something like this, You need to hear God is with you and against what's happening to you. And please get help. Speak with someone you trust. 
I know there's lots more that should be said about this, but for today, but for today, what was going on in Jerusalem, what happens even today, even in churches, is heinous and wicked. And like Micah, it should cause us to lament. Does it hit your heart like it does Micah? Sadly, too often, hearing of people's sin doesn't cause lament. Instead, we feel smug. But look at Micah. He doesn't say, look at those people out there. Aren't I so much better? Too often, people point out the sin of others just to make themselves look better. That's the heart of judgmentalism, and Micah's not doing that. He's not wallowing in it either. Woe is me, have pity on me. If only I was born 50 years ago when everyone was less sinful, which would be a lie. Micah's words have been true since Genesis 3. But too often you hear people lamenting the situation of the world with naive nostalgia and rose-coloured glasses. Micah's not doing that. Micah's lament isn't some kind of therapy to soothe himself. No, this is genuine lament, genuine sorrow over sin and over the judgment it brings. But he avoids judgmentalism, nostalgia and self-therapy. And how does he do this? Because he takes his lament to God. He turns from lament to hope in God. Verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Uh, These days, because of technology, I've noticed the new politeness says, if you're going to be late, then you need to call or text the person before the time you said uh, when you'd be late. So if you're going to meet someone at 8.30 but you're running late, you send a text before 8.30 so they know. And the reason we do this is we assume if you're even just a couple of minutes late, well, someone might get anxious. Are you going to show? We don't like to wait because waiting means trusting. You've got to trust the person is going to show, even though they're not here now. Micah is waiting on God, but he waits with certain hope, with solid trust. When Micah waits for God, he's not saying God's running late, but he's waiting on God to keep his promise. God's promised to save his people. He's promised to hear and answer the prayers of his people. He's promised. He didn't say when he would do it, but he's promised. So at this point in time... 700 years before Jesus, Micah's waiting. At the moment, Micah's full of misery as he looks around the people of God. At the moment, Micah mourns, but at the same time, he waits with hope. So in verse 7, Micah is speaking about his own hope. In verse 8, there's a bit of a change. It's still on about waiting for the Lord, but now it's as if The city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel is speaking. The I in the next few verses, it's not, but it is Micah speaking, but he's, he's in character. He's speaking the words of the nation, of the city. And even the people of God, this city that was described earlier as having not one faithful person in it, even they have hope, not in themselves, but in God. Verse eight. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, 
Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. On that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. Remember how Micah 7 started? There's not one faithful, godly, righteous person in the land. Everyone lies and does violence. If this is the situation, on what basis does Micah depict the nation expecting God to forgive and restore them? If no one cares about God, then why would they even care about, why do they even think about God restoring them? I think Micah here is speaking with the voice of the people of God, but he's talking from a future perspective. This is what's going to happen after God comes in judgment. After the people are ripped out of the land and sent as prisoners or flee as refugees, this is after that time when the people are exiled to north and south, to Assyria and Egypt, Micah's speaking with their voice. Yes, we've been crushed. We've faced the punishment of our sin. But like Micah, we are now in exile waiting for the Lord, knowing God has promised. And knowing that although they're getting what they deserve, God has promised so much more. God has promised that though they've fallen, he will raise them up again. Now, Some people believe the deep story of our world is happily ever after. That's a story Disney and the romantic comedies would have you believe. There's always a happily ever after. Uh, That's not quite God's story. God's big story is falling and rising. It's death and resurrection. And because God's story is death and resurrection, then the only hope Micah can have, the only hope God's people can have, the only hope you and I can have is in God. It's only God who can raise the dead. It's only God who will bring his wrath on his people and they will fall. That's what verse 9 says. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The people have sinned. It makes sense of Micah's complaint at the start of chapter 7. But the shocking bit of verse 9 is that the same God who is angry at sin, the same God who comes with justice and judgment, it's this same God who will plead the case of sinners and uphold their cause. Why? Why will God do this? How can God do this? Well, hold those questions because Micah gives us a hint to the answer to those questions at the end of this chapter. 
But at this point, having waited for God, knowing God and his promises, in verse 14, Micah prays. He asks God to do what he's promised. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. Back in chapter 5, we heard about a leader who would be born in Bethlehem, a shepherd who would come to give God's people security. Micah 5, 4 says, He will stand, is the one born in Bethlehem, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God, and they, the people of God, will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. That's the promise. Now, Here in chapter 7, Micah prays for God to do what he promised. To solve the problem of corrupt leaders and dodgy judges, to solve this by coming and leading God's people himself. And straight away in the next sentence, God answers. He answers at this point not by coming and shepherding, that's going to be 700 years later with Jesus, but God answers and says, Yes, Micah, what you have asked for, I will do. I'm going to come and rescue my people and deliver them from their enemies. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake. Sound familiar? Like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. God's answer to Micah's prayer is, I promise I'm going to save my people like like he's done before. There's going to be a new exodus. And the nations will see what God is doing as he rescues his people from Assyria and Egypt and they're going to be terrified. Uh, last week we spent a bit of time thinking about the fear of God. Micah 6 9 says, to fear God's name is wisdom. When fear is talked about positively, it means to honour or revere. It means to treat God like God, to take him seriously. That's not the kind of fear in verse 17. Verse 17, he's talking about someone who shakes their fist at God, even as God comes in judgment, and instead of turning and running to God for forgiveness and grace, they continue to shake their fists even as they tremble in their boots. This is the fear of being ashamed in God's presence. It's very different from the fear you have as an adopted child of God. This is the fear God's enemies, anyone who failed to turn and trust in God, this is the fear that they will feel. Now these verses, in the context of Micah 7, as Micah's prayed and waited and and God's promised to lead his people to restoration, I think they come as a bit of a shock because who is it who gets shamed? Who gets judged in these verses? It's not the people of Israel. It's not those people who were liars and violent at the start of the chapter. This is weird. Now, don't mishear Micah. Look back at verse 4. It says that those people who are untrustworthy abusers, the day of judgment has come. The day the prophets had warned them of, the day of the watchman will come. And in history, it came 
as Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, pulled its walls to the ground and dragged the people off into the captivity. But by the time we get to the end of Micah 7, there's a promise, a promise for the people of God as a whole, even whilst there's punishment for the nations. Why is this? Why is there any hope for a people who have failed again and again? Well, the hope doesn't come from who they are, but from who God is. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. In our time in Micah since after Anzac Day, I've, I've said this a couple of times, the book of Micah seems to be made up of three messages. Three times Micah says, listen up. It's how he starts the beginning of chapters 1, 3 and 6. Three messages. And each of the messages begins with judgment. Doom and punishment because people have not lived as God requires. They haven't acted justly, loved mercy or walked humbly with God. And as we've heard the assessment of what God's people are like, as we hear about their violence and lies, there's no fault in God. They're getting what their sin deserves. The shocking message is at the end of each of the messages. That's the shocking thing. It's actually not God's judgment that shocks you as you read Micah. You think, yes, God, you're doing the right and holy thing. The shocking thing is at the end of each of these messages is hope. There's a vision that after judgment, there'll be restoration. After death, there's always resurrection. And and this one here at the end of Micah's whole message is fantastic, isn't it? What is God promising to do? To stomp on sin, to crush it under his boots to throw the sin of his people into the bottom of the ocean where no net will trawl it. But how can God do this? It's the same question we've asked again and again as we've listened to to chapter 7. How can God plead the case of sinners who at the same time deserve his judgment? Well, these final words of Micah's message answer the question. It's because of who God is, and because of the promises he's made. Who is God? He's a God who forgives. He's a God who shows compassion. And what has he promised? He promised to Abraham and to Jacob. He promised to give them a nation, blessing and land. He promised he would be their God and they would be his people. And God has been faithful to that promise. He's been consistent to his character, ultimately in the Lord Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9, we hear these amazing words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteous. Are the words faithful and just? Just means the same kind of things as right or righteous. These words are both precious and intriguing. Faithful and just, they are precious words because they say God's promise to forgive and purify can be counted on. If you confess your sins, you can take that promise all the way to the bank. They're precious, but they're also intriguing. How can God forgiving sinners be just? How can it be right and faithful for for God to, using the language of Micah, how can it be right for God to trample our sins to turn them into nothing? How can it be right for God to throw our sins into his deep forgetful sea? Isn't this not all that unlike the lies of the crooked judges that Micah denounces at the start of the chapter? How can God's forgiveness be faithful and just? Well, one part of the answer is that this is God being faithful to his promises. He has promised to be the gracious and merciful God. And so if he stopped forgiving those who truly and humbly confess their sins, who turn and trust in Jesus, if God changed his mind and decided to not forgive, that would be unfaithful and unjust. It's good and right for God to do what he has promised. But 1 John also gives us a fuller answer. A sentence or two later, John continues by saying, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the one and only true sacrifice for sins. His death makes atonement. It's what's needed to reconcile and restore sinners to God. It's because Jesus has borne the wrath of God. It's because on the cross, sin was trampled underfoot. It's because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin that when we confess our sin, it's right and faithful for God to forgive us our sins, to throw them into the depths of that sea and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is such great news. And what makes God's faithful forgiveness such good news is how bad our sin is. What has God been doing in your heart through Micah? Has he been revealing your own sin and your own need to receive his promised forgiveness? Has he been training your heart to feel the terrible weight of judgment, to lament and mourn those who are lost, and to turn that lament to prayer for God's mercy and boldness to speak the gospel? What's God been doing in your heart through this part of his word? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that by your spirit you take your word and you work it into our hearts. We ask you do this for us. Please cause us to repent of our sin in the ways where, like your people in the time of Micah, bring us to our knees and change us. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. 
that your deep truth is death and resurrection and that this can be our story in Jesus. Please be working in our hearts. Help us to mourn at sin, to feel the weight of those who are dead in sin. Help us to cry out to you in lament that you might use us to proclaim the good news of Christ. And we ask you to show mercy on our friends and family and the many thousand in our region who do not currently know your forgiveness in Jesus. Amen.